Right. Well, hey again, everybody. I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about blind spots for a moment. Um, we all have blind spots, and so you can have a blind spot in your like personality or in your character. Uh, there can be a blind spot in a relationship where you can't see something in a relationship with another person. We have blind spots with our physical sight. Like there are things sometimes that get in our way. Uh, being able to see one of the most uh, common times that happens is when you're like driving. There are blind spots in your car that you need to be aware of. And the thing about blind spots, whether it's physically or even just like within us, blind spots in themselves um, aren't a problem. Everybody has them. We all have blind spots. Blind spots really become a problem when you're not aware of them or when you uh, ignore them or forget about them because whenever you aren't aware of them or you ignore them or you forget about them, then we operate as if we can see everything just fine. Right? We, we actually can't see, but we're, we're living and acting and operating like, yep, I see it all, everything's fine, I've got the whole picture, and that becomes a very, very dangerous thing. Um, I was reminded of this recently. Uh, I was, uh, many of you know, I'm a big history person, and I was recently watching back through the miniseries Band of Brothers, uh, and if you've ever seen it, it's really good, um, but you know, viewer discretion is advised. Uh, <laughs> some of you are laughing because you've seen it. Uh, but there's a particular scene in the one episode where it's, uh, it's Operation Market Garden. And again, if you don't know history, you're like, what is he talking about? doesn't matter. I'm going to say it anyway. And there's this joint operation between uh, the, the American forces and the British forces. And there's this British tank division coming down the road. And this American soldier runs over. And he's like, there is a German tank right behind that building. If you put a shell right through that building, you'll take him out. He's like, well, I can't because we can't, you know, destroy it properly. He's like, I'm telling you, he's right there. Just shoot. And he's like, I believe you, but if I can't see him, I can't bloody well shoot him, can I? Okay, so the guy's like, okay, whatever. And like, sure enough, that tank gets a little bit further, and then he sees him. And when he sees him, it's too late. Like, the, the German tank gets a shot off first, and the, the bridge tank is, is done for. And like, that is the picture of a blind spot. It's like, if I don't see it, or if I pretend that it's not there, look out. And that's kind of a little bit of the tension that we're going to get into today uh, in a passage that we're in in John's gospel, where we're going to be confronted with this idea of what can I see and can't I see, and am I willing to admit that there's things that I can't see, or do I want to keep pretending like I see it all, and it's all great, and it's all wonderful. Uh, so we're in John chapter 9 today. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can follow along there. Uh, it's also going to be up here on the screen. John 9, we started it last week. We, we hit the first 12 verses last week, and there's this miracle that happens the healing of a blind man. And so uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. There's a guy who's born blind. The disciples are like, well, whose fault was that? And Jesus uses it as a really cool opportunity to like, be like, hey, it's, you guys have the wrong picture of God and faith and the way the world operates, but I'm here to, to do something about sin and suffering. And so Jesus does this really interesting miracle where he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, he puts it on the guy's eyes and says, you know, go wash that off course, the guy's like, yeah, okay, I got, I got spit mud on my face. I'm going to go wash it off. And when he washes it off, he can see, right? So it's this beautiful miracle. And today, we're going to kind of shift into what, what, what does that mean? What's that pointing to? Because all the miracles of Jesus, they weren't just parlor tricks. They weren't just him doing like, hey, cool, watch what I can do. But they pointed to something greater. And we're kind of getting a discussion of the greater thing this morning. So we're going to pick back up John 9, starting in verse 13. This is what we read. That they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was the Sabbath, and the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. And the guy replied, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I can see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, well, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And so there was a division among them. 
And so something has happened and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are confronted with this. Okay, here's a guy who claims he was blind and now he can see. And he said that Jesus did the whole mud thing. Um, But we have a problem with that because the day that this happened was the Sabbath. This is the sticking point for the religious leaders. Uh, it, was, it was the Sabbath, and so the Jewish people weren't supposed to do any work. They were commanded by God, hey, the Sabbath, that is your day off. You rest, you don't do any work. And in their mind, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath by healing this man, specifically because he spit on the ground, made some mud, and put that on his eyes. That was not something that you'll find in um, the actual law of God, but the religious leaders, come, tradition had grown up over time where they came up with additional rules and laws and regulations and put those on top of the law of God to kind of you know, help people not break the actual law of God. But they were holding up their man-made traditions on the same level as the actual commands of God. And so they're saying, Jesus, you are breaking the Sabbath because you're breaking our rules. And because you're breaking our rules and what, what, uh, what, what someone from God is supposed to look like in our mind, you can't be who you're claiming to be. And so they keep asking this guy, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? Who did this? And so they asked him again, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Like, well, you're the one that's claiming that something miraculous has happened. What's your opinion uh, on this person? And, and the blind, or the, the previously blind man responds and says, I, well, maybe he's a prophet. He, he's a prophet. Now, I would imagine this is probably just his best guess. This blind man would have been a Jewish man, so he would have grown up with the, what we call the Old Testament. Um, those would have just been like the Jewish scriptures. And so he'd be familiar with this story that God worked through people uh, and that sometimes there would be people who would show up and do some signs and God would speak through people and in their kind of Jewish heritage and their Jewish scriptures, that person was called a prophet. And so he's like, well, clearly this guy, like God is working through this person. He seems to be teaching some things. I've heard some rumblings. He's opened my eyes, so... My best guess is he's a prophet. He's someone sent from God to work on God's behalf. But the Jews, and when uh, the gospel writer John, when he says the Jews, he's not talking about all Jewish people. That's his shorthand way of talking about uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. It wasn't every Jewish person. The blind man himself would have been Jewish. Jesus' disciples were Jewish. Many Jewish people followed him. But this is John saying, those who are the leaders over the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, they did not believe this about the man, that he was blind and received his sight. And so right away, we kind of see this picture where they're like, we have a picture of what can and can't be true, and you're telling us that you were blind and now you see, and this is the way that Jesus did that, but we don't buy that explanation. And so we need to think of some um, alternative explanations for how this happened. And so the first thing that they're going to go with is, you were never really blind. You weren't actually blind. You're making all of this up. And so what they do, they summon his parents. Like, we're, we're telling on you, okay? We are getting your mom and dad in here right now to ask them what's going on. So they summon the parents um, of the one who had received his sight. And they ask them, is this your son? The one that you say was born blind. How then does he now see? And the parents respond and say, well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And so the parents are like, okay, uh, is he our son? Yes. Was he blind? Yes. How did that happen? Yeah. We don't know. Ah, like, ah, you know, hey, ask him, which is just like, I feel like, and we're going to kind of see, they're just kind of throwing their son under the bus. They're like, hey, don't ask us. Ask, ask him. You know, he's a grown-up. He can speak for himself. And then John gives us this little insight as to why they said this. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed 
him, talking about Jesus, as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. And this is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so there is this, this word that had gone out from the religious leaders to the, to the Jewish people. Nobody is to say or to believe or to spread this news that Jesus is our Messiah. The person that the Jewish people were waiting for that was predicted throughout the Old Testament, God's Redeemer, God's Anointed One, his final king that was to come. And, and Jesus comes through the things he does, the things he, he says with this claim that I'm the one you've been waiting for. In fact, we've looked at this several times. The verse that shows on the little video that plays beforehand is John telling us the reason he's writing. He's like, I want you to believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. And so the religious leaders are like, nah, no, we, we, we do not accept that. And if anybody claims that or spreads that word around, that person will be banned from the synagogue. Now, I want to give us a picture of what this actually looks like, because for us, that might just kind of sound like, you know, you got kicked out of church, and you're like, ah, yeah, whatever, I'll watch online, right? Like, this is, it, was not, it was not the case for them. This was more than just a religious gathering. It was more than just a, where you went to worship. This was your life. This was a form of excommunication. There were two kinds of excommunication that was uh, kind of possible here in the Jewish community. The first is called nidu or nidoi. I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm not going to lie. The second is called harem. Uh, the first one, it would be where a person received a severe talking to, right? You were yelled at kind of publicly, uh, cut down with words like, you were wrong, this is terrible, yada, 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 right? And then you were excommunicated for 30 days. For a month, you were, you were kicked out of community, which meant you couldn't go to synagogue, you couldn't go to the temple. You could take no part in social, legal, or religious life. Even your own family treated you as though you were dead. Nobody talked to you, nobody interacted with you. And so that, that would mean that you couldn't even do something as simple as like buying food because no, no person in the local community, no Jew would do business with you. You were dead to your community for a month. Now, the second type, harem, is the same thing except it was permanent. You were permanently excommunicated. And so the only option you would have would be, okay, I have to leave my home, leave my family, leave my village, and go find a new community and kind of always be an outsider with them. And so it was serious stuff. And so this is the threat against people who claim that Jesus is uh, the Messiah. And so the, the parents know this, and so they, 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 they know kind of the truth. That's their son, and he can see, and like, I'm pretty sure that Jesus did it, but they deflect. They're like, ah, we don't want to get in trouble and lose our community, and so uh, ask him, he's of age. And so the religious leaders do that. The second time, they summon the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And when they, when they say give glory to God, it's not like, all right, guys, we should probably pause and pray about this, right? Let's have a little worship break, and then we'll decide if, if you're telling the truth or not. This was a, a kind of an ancient Hebrew saying and phrase. It was like an oath to tell the truth. We don't believe you. We are compelling you to tell the truth. The same way if you were to you know, take a witness stand um, in a court where you would like swear an oath, you would put your uh, hand on the Bible, and you'd be like, I, I swear I'm going to tell the truth. This is what they're doing. Like, we are compelling you to tell the truth because we know that what you've said so far is a lie. It couldn't have been Jesus that healed you. He could not have done this. So tell us the truth. And just listen to the, the certainty in, with which they speak. We know. We know. The, the posture of the religious leaders when they approach this man the first time, when they approach his parents, when they approach the man again, is this, this posture of absolute certainty. We know how things are. We know how faith works. We know how God works. So you have to be wrong. You see, when the Pharisees approach this man, they have already come to a conclusion before they even did any investigating. We have already decided what is true 
before we're going to look into it. They're not concerned with looking for a true answer. They're looking for confirmation of a conclusion that they've already arrived at. And this is, man, this is a a very uh, dangerous approach to life in general. And I feel like increasingly this is kind of where we live as a culture and as a society. I have already decided that certain things are true and I will go around looking for things that confirm what I already think and what I already believe rather than going, I need to engage the world and see things for how they are and then arrive at a conclusion. It's a very dangerous approach to life. It's a dangerous approach to faith and to Jesus because we're supposed to, again, investigate and then come to the conclusion. And the reality is many people don't do this. Specifically, as the the Pharisees are engaging with this question of who is Jesus, we're trying to figure out who he is. Many of us don't do this when we come to Jesus. We don't approach Jesus with this, like, I really want to know what's true. I come with a preformed opinion of who he is, what faith is, what Christianity is, what the the scriptures teach. It's like, I already have an idea of what I kind of want to be true. And so, uh, you know, like, I'm going to fit everything into that. And there's different extremes to this. Like, like on one extreme, if I'm just being really honest, there, there are people, and, and maybe this is some of you who are here who are watching, where it's like, I actually don't believe any of this Jesus stuff. Maybe you're here because you have to be, you know, you're here with family or something like that, but you've kind of already decided, I don't believe this is true. But you've come to that conclusion without actually investigating it. And this is where a lot of people are. They're like, I already know that Christianity and Jesus is this, and so I automatically don't believe it. And let me just say, like, I I respect your uh, decision to not be a Christian or to not believe in Jesus if you come to that conclusion honestly, if you've put in the work, if it's not been a straw man kind of thing. But for many, it's just like, nope, I don't like it. I'm not going uh, to believe it. There's a quote that I I came across that I thought summed this up really, really well. Um, This is a quote from a well-known kind of philosopher and author by the name of Aldous Huxley. Maybe you've heard of him. He lived uh, late 1800s, died in like the 1960s, so kind of the turn of the 20th century. Most famous probably for his dystopian novel, Brave New World. Um, And and he's not a person as a person of faith, as like a Christian. And he wrote this little book called Ends and Means in which he kind of talks about his own uh, kind of personal view on how he sees the world and how he arrives at these conclusions. And he said this, He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. He talks about meaning. It's this idea of that there is a God, that there's reason, that there's order, that there's somewhere that history is going, that there are like hard truths that we can anchor ourselves in. A very kind of popular way of thinking at this time was it's just just all random. It's all chaos. We're just kind of products of just the material world. There is no greater meaning. And so he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. And I was with... Uh, and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for that assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. And so metaphysics being those questions of like, those bigger questions of like existence and meaning and purpose and logic and morality. He's like, it's not, it's not necessarily just the evidence for things that's making me and philosophers arrive at conclusions. He says, no, he is also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. See, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt we would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. 
And so he's like, there, there's, there's a way that I want the world to be, and so I will just find things that allow the world to be that way. Rather than going, okay, how is the world? What is existence? What, like, what is actually true? And I will bend my life to that. I'll decide what I want to be true before I investigate what's actually true. And this is so often the posture that we come to, not, not just faith, but pretty much anything these days. We come, there's what I want to be true. And so often we come to Jesus from the, this posture saying, I don't know, I just don't believe it. But this is not just on that side of the equation because there are also those of us that are Christians, that are followers of Jesus, but we've already decided that certain things can or can't be true about Jesus and about Christianity. That we're, when we're confronted by a message or we're confronted with something in the scripture, we're like, well, no, 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 no. It can't be that because Jesus isn't like that. He, he doesn't say those things. And so it's like, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but like there's I just, his view of sexuality I don't like or his view of racial justice I don't like or his view of nonviolence I don't like or his view of enemy love I don't like or, or his view of economics I don't like. And so there's an outright rejection of I'm a Christian, but I already assume that there's certain things that are true about Jesus and if that does, when I, when I encounter something that doesn't match up with that, there's an outright rejection. We hear things like, well, that's not Jesus, that's not Christianity, that's woke, or that's bigoted, or that's liberal, or that's conservative, or that's fundamentalist, or that's communist, and on and on and on. And so on either end of this spectrum, I don't believe anything about Jesus or Christianity because I've already decided that, or I'm a Christian, but there's just things I won't live out and I won't believe because I've already decided Jesus isn't this way. We find ourselves in this space, and there's all kinds of gray area in the middle as well. And I think the first part of Huxley's quote really points to this happening. He says, look at the order. I had motives. There are things that I want to be true. There's a way that I want the world to be. There are desires that I have. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and so consequently, I assumed something that I want to be true, and so I will make assumptions about life. I'll make assumptions about reality. I'll make assumptions about existence based out of what I want. I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Here's what I want. Here's the assumptions that it leads to. And now I will go find reasons to back up my assumptions. Man, this is how so many of us live. And it, like the invitation is like, no, no, flip that. Strike that, reverse it, to quote Willy Wonka. Some of you, some of you know. Some of you are deep in my references, okay? Right? Charlie the Chocolate Factory right there. Right? We, we go, no, I, I want to go, and first I want to find, okay, let me investigate. Let me find reasons. Let me, what, what is the evidence pointing to? And then based off of that and how the world actually is, then I will make some assumptions. And then after I've investigated, after I've made these assumptions, now I will bend my motives and my desires and how I view the world to reflect reality, not what I want reality to be. And so this is kind of the, the, the posture that the Pharisees come to when they're asking about Jesus. There is something that we want to be true. We don't want Jesus to be our Messiah. We don't want our Messiah to be like that. We don't want him to upset the balance of things and challenge us and push us on things. And so we've already made up our mind about him before we've even really discussed it or asked the questions. And then we find this blind man who's caught up in the middle of all of it. And he's just like, stop, I told you everything I know, Okay. And, and they, just, they just won't let it go. And so he answers them, again, whether he's a sinner, talking about Jesus, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. I, I, you guys, you got, you, know, you got a lot of questions and the Sabbath and how this happened and who he is. You're like, I do not know. 
But there is one thing that I'm absolutely certain about. 10 minutes ago, I couldn't see anything, or I don't know how long it was, but you know, a little bit ago in the past, I could not see anything. Now I'm standing in front of you and I can see, and the only thing that happened between who I used to be and who I am now is I had an encounter with Jesus. That's the only thing that, that I know. How that happened and all the answers, I don't have all of that. I just know that Jesus changed my life. There was the me before I met Jesus, and there is the me afterwards. And I love the simplicity of, uh, of his answer. And I think for those of us that are Christians and followers of Jesus, we can learn a lot from that. Because so often we're, we're just like, I don't know, I don't, like, when it comes to talking about my faith or like engaging in the world, you're like, I don't have everything figured out, and I don't know the questions. What if somebody asks me a hard question? I don't have the answers. I've got questions about the Bible. Like, what do I do? What do I do? You, you do this. You know what? There's a lot of things that I don't know. But there is one thing that I do know. I'm not the same person that I used to be. I was somebody before I met Jesus. I'm somebody after I've met him. And, the only, and I'm completely different. And the only thing that changed was I know him now. I know him now. But, 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 but what, what about, you know, violence in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and dinosaurs? Like, what am I, like, that stuff's all really, really interesting. And it's fun to talk about. And you can spend your life talking about those things. But at the end of the day, here's the one thing that I do know. Jesus changed my life life. All, all, all I know is that you know, God became man. He walked among us. He died. He rose. He was seen. And I've been changed ever since I stepped into that reality. That's what I know. See, see what's in, important when it comes to our faith and expressing that to people is not that you have a great human argument. I don't know that I know anybody who's ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. Like, no one ever got like, I want an argument. Like, well, there's an argument. You're, you're right. Oh, gosh, I guess I got to be a Christian now. That doesn't happen. But I know plenty of people who've been loved into the kingdom of heaven. And the way that somebody's loved into the kingdom of heaven is by encountering a transformed human. So I, it's not important that I have the greatest human arguments. What's important is, am I a transformed human being? And that should do two things for us. For some of us, man, that, that, that should be so freeing to be like, you know what? I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have this pressure on me. It's a beautifully freeing thing. And for others of us, or maybe at the same time, it should scare us a little bit too. Because it's like, Am I living as a transformed human being? Because for some of us, and, and, and this is hard, and this is all of us at certain seasons, but we've got to be aware of it. For some of us, the people around us may have a hard time believing in Jesus because of how they see us living and how they see us hating and how they see us just being jerks to people and not, you know, the practicing what it is that we preach. So can we get to this place where we're like, you know what, my life has been changed, and that is my story, these religious leaders, they saw a transformed human in front of them and it's like blowing their categories. Like, we don't know what to do with this. I was blind and now I see. And so they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open uh, your eyes? And so their concern again is like, okay, how did this happen? We wanna know the mechanics of this because the Sabbath is the issue here. Did he make the mud? And this is revealing again, their hearts. That, that they have a, what they believe can be true. They have a limited perspective on they can't come to this place where it's like, okay, Jesus did this and he did it making mud on the Sabbath. Like those two, it's oil and vinegar. Those two things don't go together. And so they're limited in that area. And so the, the blind man says, hey, I, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? This is so good, okay? Because this, this is just previously blind man throwing shade. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Like just, man, like these are, these are like the power brokers in his community, the ones with the authority to kick him out of community. He's like, I don't care. So you guys want to come follow Jesus too? It's like, man, I love this guy. It's great. 
And they don't take that so well, you know, as you can probably imagine. Um, they ridiculed him. You're this man's disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's come from. And the man just fires back. Well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Now, there's something really cool happening here. He says, uh, throughout history, no one's ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a blind person. So last week when we talked about the miracle happening, I had mentioned uh, that, that the opening of blind eyes or healing of, of sight is a very, very kind of rare occurrence, that it does not happen anywhere in the Old Testament. And the only other time outside the ministry of Jesus that it takes place is uh, when uh, Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, is like kind of temporarily blinded after meeting Jesus. So it's not a very common thing throughout Scripture, except in the ministry of Jesus, it happens like over and over. It's the most common miracle that happens. And while it doesn't happen in the Old Testament, there are passages that point to it happening when the Messiah comes. That one of the markers of the Messianic age is the blind will receive their sight. There are several passages in Isaiah that, that, that talk about this, that the blind receive their sight, the blind receive their sight. So he's like, hey, throughout history, guys, like we know our Old Testament. We know as he's talking to these Jewish people, we know this hasn't happened, but we know when Messiah shows up, it's going to happen. It's one of the, the ways that we know he's here, and, and here I am, and I was blind, and now I see. It's happening right in front of them. The, the evidence is literally standing, staring at them, talking to them, but they won't see it. And it's not that they can't see it. It's that they won't see it. They've already made up their minds. They've already decided that it can't be true. And they just choose to insult him some more and say, you were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. There's an interesting kind of mirroring in the passage because this is near the end of the chapter and at the beginning of the chapter what's going on here. If, if you were with us last week, you know, the, the disciples are walking along, they see the blind man, and the disciples ask the question, you know, who was born blind? Or who, who, who sinned that he was born blind? Was it him or his parents? So they had this assumption that he was born in sin, and Jesus corrects them and says, no, that's not, that's not how this works. That's not, you guys have the wrong categories. And here, the, these religious leaders are throwing this insult at the man that says, well, somebody had to have sinned. This man was born and sin. And so that's this kind of this further picture, this mirroring saying, like, they really don't see what's going on. They don't understand. They make this false assumption. And so they insult him by saying, you were born entirely in sin. And then they threw him out. This is the pattern of excommunication. We will insult you. We will we'll cut you down with words. We will publicly humiliate. And then we will kick you out. He's excommunicated. The excommunication that his parents feared becomes his reality. He's no longer welcome in this community because he refuses to back down on what he's claiming about Jesus. Verse 35 says that Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out and when he found him. That, that's so cool. Jesus hears what happens to this man. He says, I'm gonna go find him now. That when he loses his community, when he loses his family, when he, when he loses everything that he had known, I mean, just picture that you're blind your whole life, you finally have this amazing thing happen, and sorry, you're not welcome here anymore. But Jesus goes and finds him. We don't know exactly what happens um, to this man after this, but there's some evidence in the text when 
uh, the religious leaders accuse him of being one of Jesus' disciples, and he asks them kind of jokingly, do you want to be his disciple too? Uh, and then there's some church tradition that also points to this idea that, that this blind man, previously blind man, goes on to become a follower of Jesus, that he becomes one of the part of the, the larger group of disciples, that he goes on to be part of uh, the early church movement. And so there's this beautiful picture that, that happens, like he, he's, he's healed, and he loses his community, he loses his family, but Jesus goes and finds him and says, you can come be part of my family now. I'm going to give you a new community. I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you a new place to belong. Come see what I'm doing. He finds him and he asks the question, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And so this is interesting. He, he, he asks, do you believe in the son of man? And, and when, when the, the blind guy, previously blind guy, it's just hard to say previously blind guy, so I keep him blind guy. He's not blind anymore, guys. He can see at this point, okay? That's the point. He can see. He says, well, who is this son of man that I may believe in him? It's not necessarily like, son of man, son of man. I've never heard of that before. Sure, I'll believe in him. Son of man would have been something that he was very familiar with. Uh, this was a, a title that that's originates in Daniel 7. There's this human-like figure who sits at the right hand of God who will said to reign in all dominion and authority and power. He's this final king. And so the Jewish people knew that Daniel 7 son of man. They're waiting for him and waiting for him and waiting for him. It's the son of man is the phrase that Jesus most often uses of himself. And so he's like, when he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's like, well, yeah, just point him out. We've been waiting for him for a long time. And Jesus answered, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one you're speaking to. And so now the dots are starting to connect for the previously blind guy. He's been healed, and so sight to the blind, and now like Son of Man, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. And so we get to see this, this cool journey that the, the blind guy goes down. Verse uh, 11 of this chapter, he just calls you, he's like a man who put mud on my eyes. And then verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. And now here in verse 38, it's like he's finally arrived at it. He is my Lord. He is the one we've been waiting for. He is my king. He is the one that I will give everything to. I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees were with him. They heard him say these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? Jesus responded and said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So it's this upside down kind of thing that's happening. So they're like, we're not blind, are we? It's like, actually you are, but you don't think you are. And that's the problem. So you think that you can see everything just fine. You see the whole picture, that you understand God and you understand faith and you, you think you know what the Messiah is gonna look like and you don't think that I'm him. You think you see everything because you're not willing to admit that you're actually blind. You are. You're not open to the things of God. You already have it all figured out. And what this points us to is that everyone is blind. That's the message in this passage that everyone is blind. The, the man at the beginning, he is literally physically blind, but as you go through the, the encounter, the parents are blind, the, the religious leaders are blind, that everyone in the passage is blind, but the difference is, the difference is the blind man is the only one who recognizes it. He's the only one that admits, I, I don't know, I can't see. In fact, there's three different occasions in chapter nine where the blind man uh, confesses his ignorance and then there's three different occasions where the religious leaders claim that they know things. And so in, in verse 12, the, the blind man says, well, they ask, where is Jesus? He says, I don't know. 
In verse 25, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. In verse 36, he asks Jesus, well, the son of man, well, who is he so that I can believe because I don't know? And in the end, the one who says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I admit that I can't see things, he's the one to be shown to have actual vision and actual faith. But on the flip side, the religious leaders make these claims in verse 16, this man is not from God. Verse 24, we know that this man is a sinner. Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know who this man is. And so over and over and over, their confidence of, we know, we know, we know, we have the answers. And they're shown to be blind and ignorant. And it brings us to this place where, again, it's like, hey, all of us, we're blind. We have blind spots. We have blind spots as it relates to faith, as it relates to Jesus. The question is, do I recognize that or not? Because it's an actually saying, I am blind. I can't see everything. I don't have it all figured out. That's when we start to see. That's when Jesus says, I can work with that. There's a humility that's involved in saying, I don't know everything. And so that, that, that looks different for all of us, but we're all invited to come into this position where it's like, I don't know everything that there is to know. And so maybe that's at the beginning of a faith journey and you say, I don't believe any of this. So this whole Jesus thing, you know, it's all, you know, bull. It's all made up. And if you come to that conclusion, I'm fine with that and I respect that. But come to it honestly. Have you actually sat down and go, you know what? Literally, like millions of people throughout history have believed this and continue to believe this and it's the, the only worldwide religion and it's global and it's not slowing down. In fact, it's growing in most places in the world. Is there something to this? And if you come to the end of that and say, no, there's not, well, then, again, I will respect that. My heart will be broken for you, but I'll respect that. But will you honestly put in the work? And then for those of us on the other side that are Christians, that we are, we are followers of Jesus, are we willing to be lifelong learners and never get to the point where we say, this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing, I got it. I have it all figured out. There's nothing more to learn. He has nothing more to teach me. Do, do, we, do we put Jesus and fit him into our box and say, this is exactly what what he looks like and what he's about? Or do we say, Lord, I don't know everything. I need you to continually open my eyes and guide me by your light and reveal yourself to me. See, it's that posture of humility saying, I don't know, that gets us to the point to be able to, to make the, the claim and the statement that the man made about midway through the passage and said, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. To get to that point that says, you know, here's what I can tell you about Jesus and about my life is I used to be one way, and now I'm different because of him. But the only way we get there is when we're humble enough to say, I don't know. Jesus, I need you. So that is the invitation for all of us today. That's the invitation to wake up to every single day if you're a follower of Jesus. I need you today. Show me where I'm blind. Reveal yourself to me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a God who promises to reveal yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us through your son, through Jesus. God, you continue to reveal more and more of who he is through the working of your Holy Spirit, through your scripture, through your church. God, I pray that we would be people who are humble, uh, that we would recognize the areas that we are blind in and that you would help us to see. Jesus, that we would see that you are who you claim to be, God in the flesh. You live a perfect life. You died on the cross for our sins. You rose from the grave and we can have hope and life and a future in you. We are welcomed into your kingdom God, may we be people that just go out with this posture, with this heart of saying, you know what, there's a lot of things that I don't know, but here's one thing that I know, that Jesus has changed my life. Lord, thank you that we can hold on to that.
God, as we go out of this place, as we go about our weeks, we pray that you continue to transform us, reveal more of yourself to us. Pray this in Jesus' name.